Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have hosted four seasons of this podcast. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have hosted four seasons of this podcast. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are celebrating our favorite beers of the last year and our favorite papers of last year. So at the end of the episode, we're going to discuss our mug of honor choices. Um, but uh, what, are you, what are you drinking just for, for fun? I couldn't get my mug of honor choice, which might be a tell for those of you who are keeping track. Although if you're keeping track, God bless you. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I'm drinking my standby favorite, Dragon's Milk. This is my local favorite. Yeah, and I, uh, I was honestly just drinking what I had on hand that fit the occasion. And so I'm drinking Dark Truth, the Imperial Stout version. And this one is from Boulevard, um, which makes a frequent appearance in my beer fridge. Do we really need a Voso? So what are we doing today? What are we doing today? Oh, that's me. I have to say that. Hold on. I have a whole thing. for. Oh, yeah. Wordsmith. And the thing is, it's a voiceover, but it's a voiceover. Do we really even need a voiceover? I don't know. I'll let you decide. What are we doing today, Wordsmith? This month, we reflect on our year of reading scholarship and growing as humans. First, we'll return to the segments we felt had the greatest impact on our practice and our thinking from the research we read. Later, we'll reflect specifically on our praxis. We share some of the changes we're making in our classroom and in our study that is moving us toward our goals as education practitioners. And finally, we'll share a bit about how our lives are changing outside of school and mark the 2021 recipient of the Mug of Honor. Let's get started. Uh, so for our first segment, we're going to take a look back at the episodes that we've done over the last year and return to some of what we thought were our most noteworthy papers that we read, at least in our estimation, and uh, talk about why it's worth revisiting those papers now. Uh, I cued this segment this way because... We are at the end of our summers, and so we like to take uh, take a little time to both be reflective in our practice as podcast hosts, to be reflective in our practice as education practitioners, but also to just take it a little bit easy in July uh, as we try to recharge our batteries and get ready for another um, go around the sun. Um, this year was particularly tough uh, because so much of it has happened under pandemic conditions, and so our topics have definitely focused on things relevant to uh, teaching under stress and have focused to t things that could be relevant to teaching online or teaching in socially distanced settings. And so it's so much of the year was not what you and I were trained to do and they're not what we were used to doing. And so choosing my favorites was a little more complicated because this year was tough in a lot of ways. All right. I like going, I like going from uh, number three up to number one. That's my preferred approach. Uh, so do you want to, do you want to give me your number three or do you want me to go first? Well, I want to do serpentine however we do it. And so I'll go first since I have opinions on even the most trivial of elements as sequence of reveals. 
So my choice for my third place paper, when I think about noteworthy was the prompt. What were the noteworthy papers? What were the papers that I think about a lot? What were the papers that I return to when I'm talking in professional conversations? What are papers that really had an impact as I thought about my practice? Noteworthy meant I returned to my notes regularly. That was how I operationalized that. So for number three, uh, I define that to be episode 52, uh, the social, emotional, and behavioral screening paper. Student social, emotional, and behavior development will be a critical consideration for teachers returning to physical classrooms in the fall. We read a national study examining the various methods schools use to screen students for social, emotional, and behavioral needs. Universal screening is still rare in the U.S., but its impacts are considerable. That was my honorable mention. I was going to say it at the end because I because I thought this might happen. I didn't want to start with honorable mention when it's like your honorable mention is my number one. You, I didn't want that to happen. But no, this your number three is my honorable mention. So in episode fifty-two, uh, we looked at a paper that did a national sampling of what schools and districts were doing to try to screen for social, emotional, and behavioral issues or needs uh, of their students universally um, was really kind of the focus of the papers. They looked at which schools are relying on um, just identifying problems once they're visible versus which schools are proactively looking for issues that they can solve before they start to create problems. And what I really remember the most when I was how rare it is to find schools and districts that are being proactive in screening universally. Yeah, that, that, reframed my attitude about my own district whose survey methods uh, I thought were uh, I was always critical and harsh and 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 I had been bitter about what what little my district was doing but when I realized uh, after reading that paper that my district is actually pushing the boundary of what people are acknowledging is valuable in terms of the mental health of our students and so I may see a need but that just really means that I am like a ground trooper in this particular combat, right? I see things, I need to report them to people higher than me. I need to cooperate with other teachers and support staff in my building to, if I see there's an important issue to make sure that it gets addressed. And I need to probably push myself to talk to people higher than those in my building to give them feedback on what has been working and what needs are not being met in this uh, addressing the mental health of our students. So I've been regalvanized by that particular paper on this issue, which is very great. It was good. For me, I, I did this silly thing in my notes where I was like, I made my notes for what papers I was gonna call out. And then I was like, why am I calling these out? And I ended up giving myself little hashtags of like, kind of be brief in what was the thing that really impacted here. And in my role as a researcher and somebody who thinks about policy and thinks about support, um, this paper really emphasized that it can be easy, especially if somebody like you who spent a lot of time thinking about how do I support the mental health of students? How do we craft policy in our particular buildings? It can be easy to lose sight of the, the fact that there is still work to be done just supporting the initial efforts across a lot of buildings. And so um, it really uh, re-energized me to have conversations about the value of early identification just at the fundamental, like, theoretical level. Like, we need to be proactive in identifying the needs of students, period. And I certainly have opinions on what those surveys should look like. I certainly have opinions about who should be crafting the policy and how what it should look like. But at the fundamental level, I shouldn't let those sorts of considerations that are important, and that's where how we advance the work, but I shouldn't let those stop me from also being in conversations with schools and districts who are saying, 
what do we need to think about to improve addressing social emotional behavioral needs? Universal screening is a way to have an impact. And for a lot of situations, that's where the conversation needs to start. And so it helped reframe for me the impact of fundamental policy in addition to doing the bleeding edge work of advancing what it could look like in the future. Uh, you've already said your honorable mention, so I want to say my honorable mention also. Um, uh, but my honorable mention was last month's paper um, in 053, the Making Spaces paper. This month, we are talking about race and read a series of papers looking at the experience of black students in U.S. education. First, we read an article that examined the story of the space traders as a starting point for imagining what it looks like to create black education spaces for students to express fugitivity and create racial counter spaces. Uh, was one that uh, was an honorable mention. I just I haven't had very many opportunities to note it yet because it was so recent and just not much time has passed. But uh, that paper, I think, was a good example of I, I just my hashtag was PR because I put it out as a personal record. Um, because I really, um, I, f I felt a lot of struggle in reading that paper and productively thinking about its message and its implications and applying it to what's going on in my life. And it, it wasn't easy, um, but I felt effective and I felt like I was engaged. And I, and I hope that that came through in the tape that we were really wrestling with it in a way that, uh, that I want more of in my life. It didn't, it felt like productive struggle. And so it's an honorable mention for me because it was a personal record for me. And, um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot in that episode and in, that, and in reading that paper in particular. So a year ago, uh, I remember we had recorded an episode. It was just a standard run-of-the-mill episode. It was last summer. And after recording it, before posting it, we had the murder of George Floyd. And we had... At the beginning of that episode, we had placed a little uh, sort of a position statement, I suppose, or an acknowledgement that this episode wasn't going to address this issue in America that is really forefront and prevalent at the moment. Uh, and I was uncomfortable with identifying myself by simply saying, hashtag Black Lives Matter. But I, I, I wasn't willing to like, distill it down into something that could be consumed in 15 seconds because the issue of systemic racism is so complicated that if you try to distill it into 15 seconds you will invite someone to 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 create a knee-jerk reaction to it that they will then build an identity from like, oh, well, no, that's, that's, you know, they'll, they'll have an emotional response to it and then they'll, they'll defend themselves with that emotional response and they won't listen to the discourse. What I appreciate about this paper is it allowed me personally to have the 30-minute discussion about this issue that it warrants at least 30 minutes. We could do more. Uh, there is more. And I don't know that I could do more, but people who know could do more and I would have things to learn from that. And so, yes, systemic racism is a prevalent problem in the United States due to how the United States was founded and the journey and choices that people made during that process. And the consequences of that are with us now. And so being able to have a meaty discussion where we, we acknowledge the complexities of the situation uh, was more satisfying to me than 
the Band-Aid, I, I guess I'm critical of our position, but I, you know, we had to do something, I don't know, the Band-Aid that we put at the beginning of a show for, for, for 20 seconds a year ago. Well, it's interest, uh, so it's interesting uh, because what I noticed was um, we did this, we did 053 last month, and um, as you describe, a year ago we had that episode that was already taped uh, with Kelly Cluthy was on that episode, and the issue is really important to her as well. And so it was it was intolerable to have an episode release without any acknowledgement of that really important issue. That was just that was that was unacceptable. Uh, even though the episode was already done, it was created, it was in the books, and so um, and so we acknowledge it. And then the next month we did a whole episode on it. Um, we did a whole episode with with papers looking at racism in the United States, and that was exactly a year before of O fifty three. That was also in June, and so last year, last month in June, we had an episode that looked really closely at issues of race um, because we were recording on Juneteenth, and that was the first time it was a federal holiday, and we wanted to mark the occasion with our own personal learning. And exactly one year before that, we had done a whole episode on racism because of the murder of George Floyd, motivated by racism, and so uh, it was. I'm going to say coincidence. It wasn't. It wasn't intentional. That exactly one year apart, we had these episodes focused on race. Um, I just noticed it. I just noticed that we happened to have done it. And so it's interesting as you describe it uh, that that the first episode a, a year ago that we had focused on racism didn't resonate as a part of your story because um, that episode was also hard for me. It was hard to I just to just in, participate. It was hard to participate in the way that I wanted to. Because uh, I, I had and continue to have a lot to learn. And so I remember the conversation was hard to edit. It was hard to like to build a narrative the way that we want to be able to present a show to everybody who listens. And um, it, it was hard again this year. But, but you I did it. It was more. Yeah. It, you let it go this year. Like we weren't trying to create a product. We're just like, all right, this episode is going to be uncomfortable because because it is uncomfortable in the United States. That's why it's going to be uncomfortable. So we're not going to try to polish this off and round off the edges. We're just going to say, here's the conversation we're having. We're not feeling great about how, how things are going and who we are in relationship to that. Um, but we can do better. Uh, and that has to do, and to do that, we have to look at things the way they are, uh, as ugly as they may be, identify a future that we want, that we want, which presumably is different than the present we're living in, and then change ourselves. And so, so I, I noted PR for this mention because I do feel like a more whole person this year than I did last year when we had those, that, those conversations. Um, I, I am not done learning, uh, but like we get better at what we practice, and I felt more practiced this time. Um, and so that was, that was good. That's, it's just, I'm glad I'm, I, I don't know. I think I'm getting better. I don't know. Um, but it, I'm glad that it's something that we've returned to and it's something that we're going to keep coming back to. My number three from episode 44, a democratic critique of scripted curriculum from the journal of curriculum studies. Later, we explore a critique of scripted curricula that shows their inconsistency with democratic values, even at a theoretical level. Yeah, man. Um, there were a lot. So when I was looking back at the research, like that's really important. That's really important. That's really important. That's really important. So there was a lot of papers that like 
not putting them in my top three. Um, I almost felt guilty about not putting them in top three because they were so important. But I had to put this one in my top three because all of those other papers wouldn't get space in your classroom if you were uh, delivering a scripted curriculum. And so if there's so much that's important and it's not in the curricular defined standards, it's not in the, um, the scripted lesson planning of the day, if there's so much that's important, but it's not in the script, you got to get off script. And that paper was a very, I remember it being really well written uh, and really compelling and how they were describing um, uh, the, the teacher, administrator responses to these scripted curriculum. And they also described uh, the pressure to conform. And I, I remember, what was it? Fidelity was the, the, the buzzword, like, you know, this script works if you execute it with fidelity. Uh, and that, that pressure to, well, I'm not doing things as the same as the other teacher. Well, now it's like, well, just flip the table. All education is garbage because you weren't doing the same thing as the other teachers. And that, that pressure, that perception, that push uh, is whether it's explicit or implicit, it is felt by teachers whenever there are these new programs. So recognizing that teachers need to be the ones making the day-to-day -day classroom decisions moment to moment, period by period, not just day-to-day, -day, but class period by class period, even if they're teaching the same classes, they gotta make those decisions class period by class period. That's got to be, that's gotta override this, this script. This script might be a, um, it's not even an ideal. That was another thing in the paper, that it's not an ideal. Even if you define it as this is the ideal you, you should be shooting for, it's not actually the ideal you should be shooting for. The, it is a path that might be followed if you attempted to implement it. But you've got a classroom of individuals with their, oh gosh, I episode 44. We've done all this before. I'm just going to go on for another three hours on this topic if you make me. If, if you're married to a script, there are so many important things that you can't be doing in your classroom, and they're important enough to get rid of the script. So a democratic critique of script curriculum, it's, it's downright un-American to script your curriculum. So re, episode 44, I recommend it. That's a, yeah, the, the thing that, that really that I remember about that one was uh, how useful it was to say, okay, let us set aside even all the flaws of implementation and imagine the, the theoretically, the platonic perfect version of scripted curriculum and that it is still in opposition to some of the ideals that we say we have as a society and that I certainly claim for myself as an educator. And so there is no version of this no matter where you're at in the fidelity curve, there's no version of this that can be aligned to the ideals that I've chosen for myself that have caused me to be in the education space. And so don't worry about fidelity because that's, this is not a problem that can be solved with that solution. Like it just, it doesn't work. And so that was a really useful um, intellectual exercise that they presented in that paper. Uh, my number two was from episode 51. Retrieval practice consistently benefits student learning, a systemic review of applied research in schools and classrooms. This month, we are thinking about thinking. We read a review of the applied research on retrieval practice, which recognizes the difference between learning something and knowing something. We reflect on the ways this has played out in our classrooms and 
what we can learn from recent studies for how to improve our use of the technique. And uh, the reason why I put that there is it sort of is an answer to the problem of number three. Number three is here's a, here's a, here's a curriculum. You should do it. Uh, but if these, if you're following the, connecting the dots and following all the lessons and that's not the right way to do things, well, what can we do? What should we do, right? So it's a show about shoulds. You should ask your kids what they can remember about the stuff you taught them and then identify from that what they don't know and then give them experiences to help them build that stuff and then ask them again later. <laughs> that's what you should do. You should, and, and uh, you should do it wholesale because that's what the paper was really finding because the paper was sort of asking the question okay we know that there's a lot of circumstances a, a lot of positive uh research and effects about retrieval practice but where does it not work and and they they failed to find a place where consistently doesn't work so find a way to make it work in your classroom yeah that makes sense and that retrieval practice is something that both you and i have been talking about and working on in our classrooms for a long time since like since even when we were working together and so, uh, so it makes sense to me that that would resonate. I really like returning to that topic to just stay current and keep thinking about that practice because I know, at least for me in my classroom, uh, it was such an impactful change to what I was doing. Uh, I remember some of my, my earliest attempts, um, early attempts to um, do retrieval practice is what I called it um, at the time based on some, just some, some of my first research that I read and I tried it and I felt a little uncomfortable about it. And so then I stopped doing it for a while. And I remember my students saying, Hey, why don't we do that thing anymore? That was really useful. And I was like, Oh my gosh, well, that's a big deal. Like that really has an impact. And so, and so I did it, I have done it for the rest of my career. And so, um, it's just a really important element of recognizing the entire learning cycle is, um, is we learn things, but that's not the same thing as knowing things. And you've got to, you've got to intentionally practice the knowing element of the development of competency as well. And retrieval practice is uh, one of the best ways I know how right now. Uh, and so it was a nice, it was a nice roundup of, uh, or overview rather, of the research to date on that topic. Yeah. Uh, education can sometimes, or there's a lot of pressures, right? There's a lot of pressures in education. When you're a teacher, there's a lot of problems that you need to, if you, if you can't solve them, you need, to, you need to navigate them one way or another. And um, that can lead to teachers asking questions about, okay, so how do I solve this issue? How do I help this student? How do I do this thing in my classroom? And that means that to some extent, teaching is going to have a little bit of fadism in it, right? There's gonna be a proposed solution. It's the hot current thing. Everybody's doing it now. It's gonna solve all your problems, but it, it wanes. And so I like it when we uh, find research, ongoing research that says, nope, that thing's still good. You should still be doing it. That thing's still good because it's, it's, it's surviving the research space. It's not just a popular fad. It's persisting. People are discussing. People are finding ways to do it better. Uh, it's maturing. Uh, and so when we have, I think we had one paper like that about growth mindset last year that was like, this is a continuing discussion and it's still good people. We still need to push this. And, and this is kind of this year's version of that with retrieval practice. And I found it very satisfying and re and, and affirming re reaffirming of my choices, uh, and ways that I can fine fine tune them and, and continue to hone them. So for my number two, uh, I chose uh, from episode 46, um, the nature of science and society article. Science communication has been turned upside down by the explosion of popularity of social media platforms. We read a reconceptualization of nature of science education for the social media age. 
What is our job as teachers of any content area to prepare our students to be responsible consumers of science as citizens? Um, which was really focusing on the importance of science communication, especially contextualized within, uh, I'm going to say the democratized, the, the decentralized, the fragmented nature of social media and the spread of information and disinformation on social media. And so they were commenting on the importance of science communicators uh, and uh, training students to live and read and consume responsibly and effectively in that landscape. Uh, yeah, you scooped me. That's my number one. Oh, really? That's my number one, Mr. Ralph. That's my top choice. Um, when I look back at so many issues of the last two, three, four years, and such uh, one of the one of the goals that Ralph and I share for educators, right? Each teacher needs to to be able to know what their goals are. But for both of us, uh, preparing our students to be effective citizens is a goal of both of ours. And I think citizenship today, um, since we're in a nation, a democratic nation where our citizens choose our leaders and our citizens determine our priorities, um, the, the reconceptualizing the nature of science education in the age of social media and the effects of social media on a population and and the effects of misinformation and the the effects of how engaging in social media affects an individual personally and how the effects of social media affect information exchange all of those things directly affect how one engages as a citizen directly uh, not only with just how they vote or if they vote uh, but their relationship to their community and each other within their family, outside of their family, this, the way information is exchanged in social media has consequences to the individual and to the community. Uh, and so that is a big scale problem. And there were lots of big scale problems that we addressed during these papers last year. And a lot, and all of those problems, every last one of them was affected by information being passed through social media. So all of those issues, we're talking about math, you know, we're talking about teaching in a COVID environment at school and how students, teachers, parents, and administrators are interacting with the struggle to do this in a way that is responsible, but is also um, at odds with the information they understand about COVID. Or um, how an individual responds to the hashtag Black Lives Matter, or any of a number of issues that we discussed in our papers over the past year, social media had a consequence on someone's uh, understanding and relationship with that information. And so for me, my hashtag on this one was SciComm, because what I remember from some of that conversation was uh, they just talked a lot about gatekeepers and the role of gatekeepers for information and their ability to ensure quality. Um, I was thinking about their ability to exclude participation and attention in those things. And so this paper really is something that I've returned to and even referenced in conversations and cited a few times in uh, with some colleagues is because that's one of my roles, one of my professional roles is as a science communicator, both as a researcher, but then also as, as a support person for schools and districts. And so it really put me in a place where I took seriously my position on social media, especially I, on, on Twitter, I operate in a professional capacity. I don't use any of the other social media platforms professionally, but Twitter I do. And so I, it really 
pushed me to think seriously about how am I helping schools support their students to consume information responsibly? And then what's my position in the, in the milieu um, of Twitter conversations and how can I play a role in not necessarily gatekeeping access to information, but curating and even creating information that can be more successfully consumed in this really fragmented, really competitive uh, environment so that more, su more students and more teachers can have access to high quality material. And that was something that um, I've been thinking about before, but I hadn't really systematized it to the, to the extent uh, that the authors pushed me to do in that paper. Uh, my number one paper, and this one was a pretty easy pick. When I think about note, uh, noteworthy, what am I referencing? What am I citing? Uh, I've included it in some of the other material that I've written over the course of the past year. I have trotted it out in conversations with faculty, with students, with alumni from teacher prep programs. I've even adopted some of the vocabulary and I've been repeating some of the vocabulary and theoretical arguments. It really put a framework to some things that I had, um, I had nebulously been considering to this point. Can I guess? Is this uh, epistemic disobedience? It's absolutely epistemic disobedience. Uh, yeah, the humanizing pedagogy uh, from episode 47. We read a study from pre-service teachers engaged in disrupting oppressive paradigms of teaching in a collaborative pursuit of more just practice. The use of teatro to be able to guide pre-service teachers uh, through practicing, rejecting oppressive, colonizing paradigms and behavioral patterns in ways that continue to embrace and recognize the humanity of the students and the adults who are in that classroom and engaging in that moment, even when people are making mistakes and even when people are making choices that harm people, continue to insist that their humanity still matters and that together we have to deconstruct this colonial paradigm that is embedded in so many of the educational systems. And so the powerful way that Michael Dominguez talked about the work with the pre-service teachers and not just the work in specifically using the teatro to, to practice this, this, this pattern of epistemic disobedience, but also the foundations that were necessary to have a safe space where everybody could participate in that work together. And his inclusion of his own positionality in that description was just, it was a really a model for how I want to go about doing my own research and how I want to go about helping support teachers in their professional development. And so I think about, I think about humanizing work. I think about epistemological disobedience a lot. Uh, and I've definitely trotted those words out in my work frequently. I've cited it explicitly several times. And so um, noteworthy, I note that paper a lot. Uh, I, uh, didn't make my list, but it was definitely a contender, especially when I was, you know, so there's 22 papers that we're, we're really considering for this top three list plus honorable mention. And um, there were papers that I did not remember reading at all. And that surprised me. But I was like, yeah, I, I don't know what that framework they're referring to is at all. So that clearly isn't going to be in it. And, and this one was meaningful because I remember it, especially uh, at an emotional level when they were talking, uh, they were doing the teatro and people were taking on roles that may or may not be consistent with their perceptions of whatever the classroom issue is. And the, and the thing is, is that how you deal with complicated stuff in the classroom has a major consequence with how you are perceived by the students in, those cl in that classroom. And how you're perceived by the students has a major 
a determining factor in how efficacious you are in that classroom. So um, the both in the scenarios that they were playing and outside of the scenarios that they were playing, recognizing the um, the the complexity of complex issues, the complexity of humanity, the the fact that we are powerful and can harm and heal each other, uh, and recognizing our agency as in as human as humans in the classroom with each other, that we are humans first and teachers and students second, uh, really um, is something that sticks with me emotionally. So though I may not remember all the details of their critique and their, their goals, I do remember that the, the, the humanize, please reemphasize that we are all humans in the classroom. And when you reduce yourself or the students to something other than that, uh, you're doing everyone in the room a disservice. So uh, yeah, that was, that was a good paper. I, uh, I, cheers. Document everything. For our second segment, we're going to continue this theme of noteworthy developments, but we're going to move through the other parts of our humanity because we are both humans in a basement with lots of uh, overlapping identities and activities and choices and priorities. So for our second segment, we're going to look at noteworthy de developments in our practice is the phrasing. And so uh, I phrased the prompt on the paper for you. So what are the most noteworthy elements of your teaching practice this year and why? Uh, I think that anyone, I think that if, so that's an interesting question, most noteworthy, I guess that would be things that I talk about the most and things that, let's say I had a passive observer just uh, watch me teach for the entire year, what would they say, what is different about the, how to, what stands out from this classroom to things that I would do, so maybe ways that I'm different. And uh, this year I am I did not just employ mental health Mondays for my ninth graders. Um, I, I teach a collegiate, um, a collegiate molecular biology course, and I did mental health Mondays for them too. I did mental health Mondays across the board for all students, period. Um, I took time out of the curricular expectations to discuss mental wellness with every single one of my students for a portion of class on Mondays. This is something that I had been doing for my ninth grade general biology students, but I'd been sticking with, you know, curricular time for curricular expectations and curricular standards for my uh, upperclassmen. But this year, uh, our first full and hopefully only full pandemic year, um, I said everyone needs something outside of the scripted curriculum or the, even the expected, expected curriculum. And so even my upperclassmen, my advanced placement students and my collegiate students, we did Mental Health Mondays. And that is a departure in the past. I hadn't been doing them for my upperclassmen. Um, and I do not regret that at all. Uh, my upperclassmen, I, I asked for feedback from all of my students at the end of the year, and my upperclassmen gave me excellent feedback about what segments of my mental health discussions were resonant 
and valuable to them and what segments of our mental health discussions were not resonant and not valuable to them. That allows me to maybe create a more um, effective uh, set of choices for future engagements on these topics with my students. So for me in my practice, um, doing research and engaging in school support, which is really re-emphasizing something that has been important to me ever since I left the classroom, the high school classroom, but has become salient to me again is the importance of um, positionality with regard to the work that you're looking to do. If you want to do research that impacts the classrooms, where are you relative to classrooms? Are you in classrooms? Are you working with people who work in classrooms? Which classrooms are you in? Are you in the kinds of classrooms where you want your research to have an impact? Are you in conversation with the people who are going to be affected by your research? All of the people, I mean, you can't be in, in conversation with all of them, but you need to recognize with whom you are and with whom you are not. And you need to recognize how that impacts the work that you're trying to do. And it just, your relationships to the work that you're trying to do is so, so important to the impact your work is going to have. If you seek to support teachers, where are you in relationships with teachers? Do you talk to them at faculty meetings or are you in their classrooms? Are you hanging out in their PLCs? Are you walking through in three minutes? Are you hanging out? Are you in there for three days? I've become re-sensitive to because I have to be intentional about recognizing my position and then, and then putting in time and energy to put myself in relationship with the people where I want to help. Make better mistakes. For our third segment, we are turning to yet another element of who we are as humans. So getting all the way out into what are the most noteworthy elements of your personal life this year and why? Uh, and I can go first at this time. You don't, you don't have to go first every time. My number one is really I have twin daughters at home. They are three and a half years old by this point. And so uh, they, are, they are little people. You know, they're, they talk, they notice uh, they notice not just what I'm doing, but some of the social fabric of their interactions by this point. And so uh, one of my goals for them, I, you know, my degree will be in educational psychology and I was a developmental focus for a while. And so when, uh, when Cameron asks, uh, why did you have that particular social interaction with, with my mother and your wife? Uh, I want to give her a proper answer. Um, but that really has taught me to look a lot more closely at why I am who I am and how I feel about that. Um, you know, I've, I'm choose, I chose to be snarky with my wife just a minute ago because I don't know. Why, why did I make that choice and how do I feel about that choice? And am I comfortable with the frequency with which I have those kinds of interactions versus other kinds of interactions? And am I prepared to explain that to my small child in a way that she might emulate? And if the answer to any of that is no, uh, it gives me an opportunity to make changes. It gives me an opportunity to feel good about some of the pieces that I do want to explain and also gives me an opportunity to remodel some of the parts of myself uh, that I haven't examined in quite a while. Um, and the one example in particular is um, they're getting to the age where they, we talk about they're feeling sad sometimes and it's okay to feel sad and it's even okay to cry and we, we have to be safe about it and we have to be respectful to other people's safety and, 
and privacy when we're feeling sad. We don't throw tantrums, but it's okay to feel sad and it's okay to cry. And saying that out loud puts me in a place where I want to think about, is it okay for me to cry? And can I cry? And can I, can I be comfortable? Can I even lean into crying when I feel sad? Because that's a healthy expression of emotion that I've avoided for a lot of my life. And I, I really am excited to be a more complete human because I'm in conversation with these developing humans in my life. So for me, um, I have always known that my wife is an introvert, but I have not, I have not appreciated what that meant until I suffered and acknowledged my extroversion and i don't you know like oh she's an introvert i'm an extrovert i think it was said out of convenience and not out of understanding and this past year of iso of, of deliberate isolation socially has caused some caused suffering for me and then this past summer this current summer um, I have made the vow to be social and share space with people outside of my household every single day. And currently I am meeting that. That's a big goal. Some people out there may hear, oh my gosh, you're, you're scheduling social activities every single day with people every single day. That's overwhelming. And uh, there is there's actually quite a bit of like scheduling um, burden to it. It's actually kind of a stressful to schedule it. But doing it is the best I am living my best life and uh, I am super, I'm, I'm an, an extrovert and I love it. And I, I, I now know that I need socialization to be at peace and I need frequent socialization to be at peace. Um, and I didn't really know that about myself last year. I know that about myself now after the consequences of last year and the experiences I've had from last year. Uh, and knowing that is going to help me meet my own needs so that I can be my best self and uh, be uh, and have more of myself to lend to others uh, because I'm taking better care of myself. This is better with all of you. So, what was your favorite beer? Oh, I got a podium. I made a podium for all things. Uh, do you have a list also? No, I have oh. uh, Then I want to go first. All right. Uh, is that true? We'll do the honorable mention after. My number one is the Manhattan Social Club, Club from Boulevard Brewery. Same. It was my number one also. Love, loved it. Loved it. Yeah. From episode 46. Uh, also with the... Uh, that happens to be the same episode with my number one uh, uh, research. Uh, I like the Manhattan Social Club. I like, I li man, it was just a delicious high APV uh, beer that uh, delivered what it promised, right? Felt like a Manhattan in a beer. I, I, what I remember about it um, was... I definitely, I remember feeling the effects of the high alcohol by volume, but also that it was easy to drink. And I remember like making my way through it. Um, yeah, I enjoyed them very much. And I looked for them and they're seasonal. No, it's more than just seasonal. They were limited. Yeah. Like they may not exist anymore. Like they have to deliberately choose to try that very particular thing again 
because they liked it. And I don't know that they will. So that might have been just an ephemeral preference. Oh, I'm gonna send this to I'm gonna send this to Boulevard to try to convince them to do another run for us. Oh, please, I hope so. We really appreciate you joining us as we did our season number four. Uh, this is a lot of fun and really something that I look forward to every month. We're going to jump back into our scheduled papers and our conversations to try to look at research that you can use in your classrooms and in your practice to improve what you can do with students. And so remember, this is better together if you have questions or if you have suggestions or if you're a researcher and you think we ought to take a look at your work. We would love to read what you write. We would love to talk with you. Please reach out on social media where I'm on Twitter. Uh, we have our website, 25plc.com, where you can contact us. Um, and so we're going to keep going uh, as long as we've got a community here because as a PLC, this is better together. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.